welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us on this Monday morning. Alongside in the studio, we welcome former Arsenal striker Alan Smith. (laughs) And down the line, The Times' chief sports writer, the original, Matt Dickinson. Later on, we'll be talking some spurs and how they're down to their bare bones and the resurgence of one Marcus Rashford. Although, did he ever really go away? Can we speak Mm. of resurgence when you're still that young? We will find out a bit later then. But we start with what was billed as a make-or-break game for Arsenal in the Champions League chase. The Gunners halved the gap on fourth-place Chelsea to three points with a 2-0 win over the Blues on Saturday night. Now, Maurizio Sarri was absolutely scathing in his assessment of Chelsea. He said he wanted to speak in Italian via an interpreter so that his message would be absolutely clear and this was his message. He said, I'm extremely angry. This defeat was due to our mentality. I can't accept it. We had a similar issue against Tottenham in the league. It appears this group of players are extremely difficult to motivate. Quite alarming, then, what he had to say. Is there a chance this could backfire on him, Gap? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things to say. First of all, like I heard the uh, the translation. And so then I went back to look at the original because while the guy who was doing the interpreting there is really experienced commentator, I thought, all right, is he trying to put some complicated concepts across that make more sense in Italian? And to be fair, I think 99% his words were put across accurately. So there's no real issue of, of translation, I think. But this isn't exactly what he said. So I am kind of putting words in his mouth. Part of what he meant to say, and this is something that he's actually said before, but nobody seemed to notice after the uh, after the Spurs game, you know, he said these players aren't natural sort of grinded out battler types. Not everybody, but but many of them. And they have to push themselves if they're going to be involved in that kind of game. They're more players who, you know, when I say this, are, are maybe more Ryan Giggs than... Roy Keane or Nicky Butt, if that makes any sense. That was the kind of the point that he was driving at. That's not what he said, even in Italian. And so inevitably, the players are going to take it that way. I don't think it's this chicken little skies falling. Oh, look, it's just like what happened with Conte and Mourinho when they blame the players. No, because the circumstances, I think, are entirely different. His relationship with the squad is very different. But, you know, I think it is it is a gamble to go out like that because of the narrative that that's going to develop in the next 72 hours, heading into what for Chelsea I think is a pretty big game, that return Carabao Cup semi-final against Spurs. Obviously, we've seen a manager this season be outspoken about his players. That manager ended up losing his job at Old Trafford. Um, Matt, how, how do you feel then about Sarri being so open about his uh, criticism of his players? Well, as Gab said, I mean, it's, de- it's definitely a risk. It's not, it's not a card you can play too often. I mean, I think, you know, the difference with Mourinho is that he he clearly got on a... Yeah, major downer right from the preseason, and um, you know that that's more to do with his sort of psychology of just you know I can't win anything. I'm going to sort of blow the thing sky high and find people to blame. I think Sarri's more sort of you know <laughs> trying to go to a managerial tool, but you can't use it too often. I think you know this you know sort of berating the players. You know you can try and do it to give them a. Uh, a kick at a, a critical time, you know, try and, you know, stir up some kind of reaction. But, you know, say that's, that's, that's a tool that you can, you should use sparingly, basically. Um, I think there's a bit simplistic of, of, of sort of some commentary on it saying, oh, it's his job to motivate them. Well, you know, he clearly thinks this is a way to try and motivate them, but that's 
as Gab said, a huge game on Thursday against Tottenham. Um, I didn't think they were actually that bad in, in, in the first leg. In fact, the second half, they took, took the game to Tottenham. Um, but they're going to have to do that from the start. They're going to have to play a whole lot better. I mean, that's, you know, I'm sure we can get on to the... the we've discussed it many times before, but, you know, lack of striker and, and obviously all the um, expectations of Iguain coming in. But there there are flaws in this team as as as, as well as motivational problems. Someone like Alonso, you know, superb um, under Conte. His forms, the games I've seen, he's just half the player that he, that he was. So there's a lot of issues there. I think there are fair indictments of, of Sari, and there's others that don't make too much sense. Um, one factor is he took over a team that finished outside the top four, and right now, for now at least, they're in fourth place and have a three-point lead over, over two opponents. Um, I think also... You know, the Murata situation, they gave it a go. I don't know if anybody, I mean, I think it would be pretty mean-spirited to go and blame Sarri for, for Murata's performance, which, you know, you can go back and say, oh, they could have bought somebody else in the summer. Yeah, okay, fine. But the club didn't do that because they had a lot of money tied up in Murata, you know. Um, he kind of inherited uh, that situation, which didn't help either. He took over the team, obviously, very, very late. On the other hand, I think there's certain situations he hasn't helped himself with so when he was at Napoli last year um, and the year before, they played phenomenal football. They finished with a super high points total. They really pushed Juve, but he always played the same guys. Uh, he really didn't use his squad as a whole. Uh, in sharp contrast to the guy who replaced him this year, Carlo Ancelotti, who really is using his entire squad. And I wonder if to some degree, you know, when he talks about motivating players, you mentioned Alonso there, and, you know, and I think Alonso is basically is is he plays an attacking position even though he's left back or you know that's what he brings to the table but you know if you're Emerson and you never play if you're Christensen and you never play other than against you know uh, 11 Muppets in the Europa League I wonder if that you know that gives confidence to the players who do play because they know they're always going to play but also I wonder if that maybe puts them in a little bit in a little bit of of a zone a little bit of a comfort zone I don't think that 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 helps them at all um, and what tends to happen is when, when he is forced to make a change and chuck somebody in there, they often look like a foreign object in the team because so much of his style of play, especially off the ball, is based on coordinated movements and whatever else, and you just don't have the same chemistry. I think the biggest issue is just the passive nature of the way they're playing. The if you go back to, I think it was the game against Everton, they also played Spurs, and they'd been scoring freely up until that point. And since then, if you look at the stats, the the goals have just dropped. But in terms of actual chance creation, I think that hasn't changed dramatically. And you can't really overlook the fact that their best player, one of the best players in the world, is playing out of position. Um, again, that's not necessarily Sarri's fault because he's inherited a team that had two strikers who weren't particularly playing well. I mean, I, I would I would agree with that. So yeah. if you have Giroud, who... It's fine, but you know, it's not a ninety-minute striker. And Morata with his issues again. Some background here. So the last two years that he was in Naples, they had they they spent money on a center forward, Arik Milik, who who then just got hurt straight away in September and October, and then he played a little nippy Belgian winger at center forward named Dries Mertens, and he was outstanding and scored a million goals. And that's kind of what you assume he's tried to do with Hazard. But the difference is Hazard plays the position very differently from the way Mertens did. They most, might both be small and Belgian, but Hazard goes deep to pick up the ball and there's nobody in the box. 
So I wonder if in that situation, would you be better off maybe putting Hazard back wide and playing Pedro through the middle you know, while you have that? Well, the stats that you've alluded to, um, Alan, Chelsea have scored 27 goals in their first 11 Premier League matches under Sarri. But since then, they've scored 13 in 13 games. So is it uh, fair to say that uh, Gonzalo Higuain, Matt, can't arrive soon enough? Uh, well, certainly according to the excellent piece written by someone in our paper this morning um, uh, about him. No, I mean, he, uh, there is a stopgap feel about it, obviously. Um, it's, you know, who can we rustle up? At least it's at least it's a player Sarri knows very well. There, there shouldn't be any, you know, in terms of motivation and uh, understanding of what's required for that role. That certainly shouldn't be a, a problem. Um, and, and, you know, he's... Yeah, I mean he's 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 done it at a high level for for a very long time. But uh, you know, I, I I was actually getting harangued by um, I was walking through Richmond Park with my dog yesterday morning, and a Chelsea fan saw me and, and literally spent ten minutes sort of. Um, I was quite quite struck actually. I mean he was he was he was angry. He was he was furious. He's saying you know this um, that we're not giving Sarri hard enough time, which I thought was a bit uh, a bit harsh. But I think it's in, it was interesting. I think that the crowd are going to turn up on on Thursday night with. Um, and, and if it does go wrong, I think there's going to be a lot of frustration around the place, which, as Gab says, is a bit of that is harsh, given that when Terry arrived, we didn't know how long, well, we expected it was going to take a long time for him to, to bed in what are very known to be very sort of particular uh, strategies. And those strategies clearly don't suit um, all the manpower that he's inherited. Looks like it's going to take, you know, a couple of transfer windows and the backing of the Chelsea board to get the team that can play Sarri ball as he uh, as he wants. Well, let's give some credit to Arsenal then. Their players covered more ground than they have in any Premier League game since Opta Records began. Uh, they were really all over Chelsea, particularly in the first half, Alan. Yeah, and I think I read they've only won one Premier League game with less possession than they ended up with on Saturday. Um, and obviously when you don't have the ball, you're running more, um, which sort of explains that statistic. Um, I think that also points towards the absence of Mesut Ozil, who Emery has kind of made the point consistently that he doesn't work hard enough. Um, And you're kind of seeing the results. This is how the team is playing and therefore explains why he remains remains out of the team. Um, With Arsenal, because Emery has sort of tweaked it so much, um, formation, personnel has constantly kind of evolved and um, he's made more substitutions in half-time or before than the rest of the five of the top six combined and on Saturday I think the, the switch to a diamond midfield worked really well and it's sort of it's a case of when it comes to Chelsea that it's very much if you can kind of just stop Jorginho who obviously sets the tempo for them then that's it Chelsea you know don't really have a, a plan B at the moment. Well, next up, Paul Chelsea, as was mentioned, is this Thursday night. They have to overturn a one-goal deficit in the Carabao Cup semi-final against Tottenham, who we'll be speaking about more in a moment. It is a Tottenham team without Kane, Son and probably Ali. It's at Stamford Bridge. Matt, Chelsea fans will be expecting their team to reach the final, won't they? Well, uh, as I said, I think they'll be turning up sort of very edgy, to be honest. I mean, uh, you know, the way they came back at Tottenham in that in that uh, first leg um, sort of offered some hope but then obviously then the performance um, against Arsenal um, another cause of frustration it's just the idea of where they're going to you know they're going to have to score um, and and more than once to get to get through and that's you know that is a real issue um, we're expecting 
you know, Sarri has his methods. He's not about to change them. We don't, we're not expecting him to suddenly do anything radical, um, which obviously helps Tottenham's preparations, you know, despite the fact that they're obviously patching up in some places. I, in, on pure sort of confidence um, and smelling the which way it's going, I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think um, Chelsea fans will be turning up. No, obviously will be turning up hopeful, but I, I think they'll be edgy as well. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It is just £3 for three months in our January sale. Tottenham left it late at Craven Cottage on Sunday, but maintained their seven-point lead over the chasing pack in the race for the top four. Harry Winks with a 94th-minute header to break Fulham hearts and secure a 2-1 win. No Kane, no Sun. They go a goal down. Once again, Matt, we witness the resilience of this Spurs side. We do, um, although you have to, uh, you do have to wonder if they're going to pay for it at, at, at some stage. Um, uh, I mean, Pochettino obviously has uh, more than once um, in recent times alluded to the fact of, of the lack of uh, summer signings. Um, and, well, I think a, a lot of us at the start of the season wondered if that was going to bite them. Um, typically, they've, they've proved better than that. Um, Pochettino's proved better than that. They've had a, a, a really good season. But, yeah, you do... Now look at it. Uh, he's a resourceful manager. There are a lot of versatile players, um, but you do wonder, you know, if they're about to hit that point um, with a lot of of, of of big games to come, uh, and obviously returning to the Champions League, where it's um, and, and it's not, you know, it's Kane. Kane can be measured in so in many ways. I mean, it's it's partly obviously the goals, it's significantly the goals, but I mean, he has become this wonderfully versatile, adaptive striker. Spending a lot of time, you know, dropping those deep, creating those pockets for for other players like Son to run into. They did well yesterday. They got that late, late goal, but uh, it's not going to be easy moving on. Well, Dele Alli scored the equaliser, but then later left the pitch with a hamstring injury. Don't yet know the full extent of it. But Alan, do you think the squad is at breaking point right now? Yes, and. As Matt alluded to, the lack of summer signings was always, you know, meant that this was going to happen. Um, back just before Christmas, they played Burnley and scored an injury time winner. And Oliver Skip made his debut in midfield, and it was kind of hailed as this, you know, triumph of Spurs Academy number one. And secondly, that this is the deepest Spurs squad in some time. Well, I thought that was nonsense because, in reality, because of injuries, a lot of people on my timeline who complain of the lazy journalism that we display when we mention when we mention Spurs' lack of depth. Just warning you, I'm not going to take sides it, on this. But, it, but. He was only there because of because of injuries to key players. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary um, what's happened. And if you look through the, the sort of rotation during the Christmas fixtures, when every, everyone else is making wholesale changes, and I think if you take the back four away from that Spurs team, I think there was one change where Mora started one game instead of Ali. Um, and apart from that, it was the same starting. Yeah, it was the same starting six for something like four games in the space of. Uh, this is many the kind days. of stuff that comes back to haunt. I mean, I really hope it's not the case, right? But Ericsson, who is the guy who probably should be rested yeah. more often, and we've seen him rested earlier in this in the season at times. Now the dude's going to have to play presumably all the time because yeah. because of the other injuries elsewhere. And you know, I look at this game, and you saw Claudio Ranieri afterwards, you know, being angry and stuff. Hey, he should be angry. 
he should be angry because, all right, Tim Ream did his best and he screwed up. Stuff happens on Ali's equalizer. That is a piece of sheer dumb luck going Tottenham's way. But the defending afterwards with the cross, where you know the guy's in the box. Oh, look, you know, there's Dele Alli at the far post. Shall we mark him? Nah. You know, what's he going to do anyway? The Winks thing is even worse. Why you don't play the ball into the corner. Why you, like, oh, look, we don't know who George Kevin and Kudu is because he's never started. He's been here three years. He's never started a game. But, look, he can still deliver a cross. The way the, is it Brian, I'm thinking? The way he sees Harry Winks move in front of him, like, okay, so he's little, he doesn't score many goals, he scores even fewer with his heads. Why do you think he's there if not to score? And it's just appalling. And on top of that, we want to talk Vertonghen on Mitrovic. I mean, I know, Dicko, you're in the VAR camp. But seriously, these decisions have consequences. Again, I don't think this was a great, a great weekend for the, for the referee. How you cannot see this guy being dumped on his head, I think is pretty appalling. But, I mean, I think the, 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 broader, the broader issue for Tottenham's perspective is a little bit like Liverpool right now. They're getting results without playing well. Maybe the difference is that Liverpool do have more firepower and more fit players. If I'm Tottenham, I look ahead and I, I'd be a little concerned. What we can say about Fulham is that they became the first team in Europe's top five leagues to concede more than 50 goals this season. They need to drastically change that rate at which they're conceding goals, Alan. They do. I'm not sure that they can. Um, I think Ranieri has improved things, hasn't he? But it's still just not good enough. I remember seeing them quite early in the season when they played against uh, Watford and somehow they managed to draw that game, mostly because Watford kind of fell asleep while in front. And it just looked like, because they'd made so many signings and there were so many options available, they'd no idea what the the best back four would be or if they wanted to change the system back three or five and you reach the end of January now and I'm still not sure who should the first choice centre-half partnership be um, because well, they've Adoy all been somebody but they've all well Adoy had not Tim Fosumensa <laughs> um, but they've all had moments you know of complete disasters I which... thought Lynn Marchand was okay but yeah but he's not a great player no uh, you're, you're right it's I mean, the, that's the, why he the, plays three plus Callum Chambers, right? <laughs> I mean, but only once before has a Premier League team had as few points at this stage of a season and stayed up. That was, of course, Brian Robson's West Brom in two thousand and five, the Great Escape. Gab, you know Claudio Ranieri well. Can he save Fulham? Yeah, of course he can. Um, whether he will, I think, is another issue. I mean, I think we said this before. They're, I think, by far the most talented team in in the bottom three, but they need a team above them to go and start dropping points. I think this season, more than ever, we're seeing a really spread out Premier League uh, where where the gap, the, the gaps have really increased. And it's a bit like the Overton window, you know, where like people now think that this is normal, that, you know, you've got two teams with less than 15 points and, and we've played, what, 23 games this season, something like that. Mm-hmm. This is not normal. This wasn't normal in, in football for for a hundred years. And now, like, oh, look, you know, these are the chosen ones and these are the rubbish ones. And Liverpool can play like rubbish and they'll still win because, look, they've got so many more resources than Palace. I'm not picking on Liverpool, by the way. You know, much respect to them. Um, yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's going to be difficult. 
Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's 100% start as Manchester United manager continues with a 2-1 win over Brighton at Old Trafford. It's seven wins out of seven now. Another goal for Marcus Rashford as well. Uh, the 21-year-old has started every Premier League game under Solskjaer as a central striker, scoring in five of those matches. Matt, how much credit does Solskjaer deserve for his uh, handling of Rashford? Well, I think a fair bit. Um, I mean, we should just say you know, it wasn't just a goal, but what a goal as well. I mean, just uh, superb, you know, quick feet. Um, and and fantastic finish that sort of you know didn't even look, didn't even look like a chance um, and, and that's what a confident informed Marcus Rashford can do confidence being the first part of it uh, you know it, uh, we we've all probably talked about Jose Mourinho enough by now but I mean you know fairly plain that he did not show uh, his face in in Rashford. Um, didn't show his faith in him to consistently lead the line, didn't show his faith in him to, to deliver consistent finishing. And the manager's come in who's, who's very quickly instilled that sort of confidence. I mean, I think James Gearbrandt's a very good match report as well today, just saying that it's, it's not just about Rashford suddenly finishing. It's actually also about creating a number of chances, the, the shooting opportunities, and those have surged up uh, since since Solskjaer came in so it, you know it's not just about one player um, it's about the whole team structure the way it's playing the way it's been obviously more aggressive more front foot um, so that you know this, this improvement also has to be put in that wider context Well Solskjaer says with Harry Kane injured Rashford can perhaps establish himself as the best striker in the Premier League do you agree with that Alan? He can long term I don't necessarily agree that he can before Kane comes back if he, once Aguero retires yeah Aguero um, Aubameyang at Arsenal has been far more consistent this season um, Higuain if he comes in would overtake him as well you would imagine I do think I do think <laughs> um, I do think if you look at the club he is the best striker of the club despite Lukaku's transfer fee um, I mean when was the last time you know, it, it's now probably more than a year since Lukaku went on a, a really really good run of form and he looks kind of, you know, he, he's kind of appeared from the bench and he's been mildly effective at, at a very, very small sample size. But I think Rashford is, you know, the number one choice striker and he should stay in the position. The improvement in the team and players like Rashford uh, draws attention to Jose Mourinho, who made an appearance as a pundit on B in Sports this weekend. And Mourinho said the time where the manager was the highest point of the club and all-powerful, I think, is over. You need the structure. The next club I speak with, the first thing I speak about, is not the players I want to buy, it's not about the budget, it's what you are given in terms of structure. Gab, what do you make of those comments? Well, the first thing to make very clear, and Dick will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he's most definitely speaking in general terms and most definitely not speaking about Manchester United <laughs> because he's not allowed to speak about Manchester United. So he's just speaking in very loose generalities. <laughs> the time where the manager was the highest point of the club and all-powerful, uh, it's not over now. It, it ended a long time ago. When he talks about structure, what does he mean? You know, the Mourinho whisperer, Duncan Castles, explained that Possibly one of the things that he was referring to was um, that he recognized the need for a director of football, a recruitment specialist, and he wanted to bring in um, Luis Ocampos from, uh, funnily enough, is Portuguese and is represented by the same guy who represents him, but that's another issue. Um, he's at Lille now, previously at Monaco. He's, he's, he's a really, really highly respected uh, scout, and 
maybe that's the structure that he's talking about. I don't know. Again, after the facts, and I was speaking to the agent of one of the Manchester United players who made the point that when Mourinho was there, all the focus was on him, right? So, you know, you could talk to to Carrick or McKenna or whatever, but you felt like they were kind of out of the loop and then Mourinho would kind of decide his own. not Not in a bad way, but that ultimately didn't really matter. You had to speak to Mourinho. Now... One big change in having Mike Phelan's there, Mike Phelan is, he, he described him as like a combination coach, director of football in terms of the relationships between the players and the club. And the guy talks to everybody continuously. And that's really lifted, lifted people a lot, simply because, not because Mourinho didn't want to speak to his players, but because his time was limited. Maybe this is what he's talking about. That's fine. But you know what? Um, you joined the club two and a half years ago. You had all sorts of time and, you know, the fact that you realize now that the structure is important, I don't think it makes you look particularly good or particularly uh, clever. Time now for our weekly predictions game where Gab and I go head to head trying to predict five results from the weekend's football. So we started the city ground where we both expected Martin O'Neill's first game in charge of Nottingham Forest to end in a draw against Bristol City. But the Robins ruined O'Neill's day with a 1-0 win in the championship, which makes it 1-0 to me. (laughs) Okay, then. At the Emirates, Gab went for a Chelsea victory. I went for an Arsenal win. So it was 1-0 to me, Gab. We both went for Man City to win at Huddersfield, but I was awarded extra points for guessing the exact scoreline of 3-0. Okay, you did, you did. So, so that's that's an extra five points <laughs> that I get, so I'm winning 5-1. I'm not quite sure this this adding up of yours. But anyway, uh, while you thought Claudio Ranieri's Fulham would win 1-0 against Tottenham, I went for a 2-1 win for Spurs, so that's also the exact scoreline. Oh, I was, I was doing all right at this stage. Yeah, although, come on. This is all down to to, to, to to Tim Ream, to the other the other fool who doesn't go and mark Harry Winks. It's in the ninety-third minute, the game's over by that point. You should play the ninety minutes the way God intended. Hold on, Colin. Anyway. What happened in Syria, Gab? Uh, well, we both went for Napoli to beat Lazio. Carlo Ancelotti's men won two goals to one. They also hit the woodwork three times. So it is a victory for me. Once again, I restore my lead to 12-6 this season. Back on track after last week's defeat. Thank yeah. you, Tim Ream. <laughs> David Wagner is no longer Huddersfield boss, but unlike other clubs where once somebody's let go, they're never spoken of again, all their pictures are taken down, they're erased from history, he was celebrated when the club took on Manchester City. Dicko, can you explain this? Um, it's a bit unusual, and why did he leave, and what does the future hold for the club? Um, well, the future probably holds, uh, almost certainly holds relegation, doesn't it? But as as you say, they, they don't hold that against um, David Wagner. I mean, they think he's, you know, he presided over great times for them. I don't think, um, you know, they, they didn't just come up, but they, they stayed up, they played some good stuff, they punched above their weight. And I think occasionally um, he's run out of steam. He thinks he's taken them as far as um, they can go. He was, you know, I think he told them a little while ago that you know he, he thought this was he was approaching the end. Um, and sometimes that happens. You know, manager feels like right. You know, maybe these players aren't listening to me anymore, or I've run out of energy, or I've I've I've, I've done my time. Um, and 
I think the way it's been handled is, is well, it's, it's. I mean, it's obviously going to be sad for the the club if they um, if they go the way with they're, they're heading. But it's it's been a a great few years. Shocking grown-up behaviour by a manager, a fan base and a club. Yeah, who would have thought it? A Wolves play a wild one against Leicester City and it finishes 4-3 as Diogo Jota bags a hat-trick. And we have a lovely piece with John Richards who scored Wolves' last top-flight hat-trick back in 1977. Uh, Alan, Nuno was sent off, could face further action from the FA. Why are they such Grinches? Will he face further action? I know there's a, the, the report was that there's a chance he will. Um, I can't actually see a misconduct charge being brought against him. I'd be shocked. Um, the one thing I noticed from this was that Chris Kavanagh was the referee who sent him off. Chris Kavanagh was also the referee for Liverpool-Everton when Klopp ran onto the pitch and received no punishment. Um, and the bigger issue here, again, I mean, we, we kind of say this every fortnight or something, but the lack of consistency. It's the same. You know, if it, you can maybe make the argument if it's a different referee, but if it's the same referee applying the same rule differently in two different occasions in the space of you know a, a few weeks I Maybe he just don't understand <laughs> yeah in the centre circle <laughs> Jurgen Klopp was fined yeah retrospectively yes. he wasn't punished at the during time. the during yes. the game he wasn't sent off I did feel kind of bad for him I mean mm. yeah. some level of spontaneity Natalie one for oh. you now which player in the football league made their 600th yes. appearance this See, weekend. This is the beauty of the EFL. It was Tony Ford played more than a thousand games. <laughs> Graham Alexander played like a million games. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Yeah, something and they're like outfield that. players. I hope this isn't a goalkeeper because that no. would be anticlimactic. No, it's Dean Lewington. You know oh, Dean yes. Lewington. Um, yeah, so he made a Ray six... Lewington's son. Indeed. Is he really? Yes, no he idea. is. He is. That's so awesome. he made a six hundredth appearance uh, for MK Dons against Crew in League Two. As you say, he is the son of Ray, that the former England assistant manager and one-time Brentford boss. Should say that as well. He wasn't good though when he was at Brentford, was he? Well, we we got to the uh, EFL Trophy final. Uh, lost that though, and we ended up I think fourteenth in Division Two at the time. So not great. Oh. But anyhow, um, he is. This is Dean Lewington, the twentieth player since eighteen eighty-eight to have played six hundred games for one club in England. So obviously, very much a one-club man. He's been at MK Dons for so long that it was actually known as Wimbledon when he first joined the club as a training back in two thousand and two. And you have to wonder that if they ever decide to erect a statue outside the stadium, Dean Lewington's got to be one of the first that'll have his statue there. You would assume so. What position does he play? Oh, a left back. Oh, so he's actually somebody who has to run up and down. Like he's not like he's one agile. Of those. No, no, but I mean, if you play six hundred appearances, you figure it's either a goalkeeper, it's one of those sort of like stationary, like yes. central no, midfielders. No, no, he has to or... he has to move. All right, well but, done, well done, Dean Lewington. Yeah, great achievement for Dean Lewington. Uh, right, Paul Scholes is being strongly linked to the Oldham job. Matt, does he look like manager material based on what you've seen and what you know? Um, it's, it's, I imagine most people assume not, just because he's he's always come over sort of quite monosyllabic. But there is, you know, like a lot of people, that, I mean, that's that's just been the way he's played it in in public. Um, he's got a lot more to say, and, it, and he's got a famously sort of what he does say, uh, shall we say, generally has a has a has a point and a target. He's um, sharp, uh, so it'll be it'll be fascinating. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm intrigued by it more than anything, and obviously there is a. Uh, certain um, sort of romance to it. It's you know the club where he's talked before about you know just going along on a Saturday afternoon to um, just to sort of stand on the terraces and, and watch. Um, so there's a 
a little romantic streak to Paul Scholes too. So basically the thinking is whenever United didn't play on a Saturday, or maybe when they played at home and it was an early kickoff, what, like, he'd just shower and go and, and slip into the terraces at Oldham's ground, which is called... Boundary Park. At Boundary Park, thank you. <laughs> and nobody would notice him? I don't think no one noticed, but it's probably, you know, uh, I mean, a bit like when they they go along and watch uh, watch Salford, which obviously could be a, a small complication if Salford actually um, do come up, given that he's a, a part owner um, owner there. Um, so that could, um, yes, that, that could need sort of unpicking somehow. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 footballers do do it. They do actually go and watch football purely for enjoyment sometimes, even at Oldham. Liverpool stay top thanks to their 4-3 victory over Crystal Palace. Alan, this was an exciting performance and an exciting finale and a really neat finish from Mo Salah. Um, this is not a good Liverpool performance by any stretch of the imagination. Any reason for Liverpool fans to be concerned? Um, I think the bigger cause for concern is he's going to play it right back for the next couple of weeks. Obviously, James Milner will now be suspended. Um, Alexander Camacho. Arnold. Yeah, who uh, it, there's a nice quote in um, Paul Joyce's match report this morning from Klopp kind of saying, you're not going to realise how important that late tackle that he made was. It could be, you know, one of the defining moments of your career, <laughs> which I thought was quite quite a thing to say for somebody who's, you know, just kind of got into the team. Um, but By the way, who, Fabinho has played right back before. He was a f- right back at the start of his career. I don't know why everybody's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Part of that is probably because Alexander Arnold has been so good. Um, and then Milner is sort of has been there long term as this dependable figure who can slot in anywhere. Um, so in terms of the actual performance, I think it was you know that was just a complete freak that they would concede the same number of goals in one game as they had in the, at home in the rest of the, rest of the season before that. Poorly. Touch of good fortune about some of their goals. Um, well, Spironi um, playing his first uh-huh. game since 2017 was uh, a nice advantage. Um, and Spironi is old enough to be your dad, by the way. Um, I'm not sure it's physically, biologically possible. Anyway. Or um, old enough to be yeah. Gearbrand's dad. How's that? that yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but I felt it, like Zaha was obviously quite good and caused Milner in particular a lot of trouble. Um, and I don't think that's going to happen every week. And they're still scoring goals. So. Okay, one last one. And it's for you, Gab. Who is Hakim Al-Arabi? And why should we care? Well, the reason you should care is this is um, it's a remarkable story. He's a he's a footballer from uh, uh, from Bahrain who, uh, back when they had the Arab Spring in Bahrain back in November 2012, he was arrested, charged. He was part of those those, those protests against the government. He was charged with vandalizing a, a police station, and he fled the country. And he was granted um, he sought asylum in Australia. He was granted refugee status in Australia. In the meantime, they tried him in absentia. His supporters say the whole trial is a sham because apparently he was in playing a televised football match um, at the time that the uh, um, that the police station was uh, was vandalized. But you know he faces ten years in prison now. It's okay. He's in Australia. Then he decides to get married. He goes on honeymoon to Thailand. Now he got advice from the Australian government that it was safe for him to go to Thailand. Instead, he got arrested in Thailand. Apparently, on the back of an erroneous arrest warrant, which weirdly was issued by the Australian uh, federal police. So it's a, it's a messy situation. Long and short of it is he's in Thailand. Uh, Bahrain are trying to extradite him to Bahrain. 
there's a lot of people who are putting pressure on Thailand. Other countries in the Gulf, like the Saudis and um, the Emiratis, are backing the Bahraini government. They want to see him um, sent back to to serve his sentence or, or run his appeal anyway in uh, in Bahrain. FIFA have stepped in, telling Thailand, "Look, you guys need to send him back to Australia. He's he's a refugee." Thailand stuck in the middle. A lot of people are, are trying to put pressure on uh, on the Thai government. And in fact, top, if you're listening, maybe you can put in a word with uh, with the king or other important people you know, because it, it really is sort of a really wrenching story. Because mm-hmm. it seems that you know this guy was was given bad advice twice by people who should have been looking after him. Okay, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to our excellent guests. It's the Times Chief Sports Writer, Matt Dickinson, and it's the mysterious Alan Smith. (laughs) Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just £3 for three months in our January sale. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back on Thursday with an author special. And I know, I know, some people are going to be like, oh, that's boring. Who wants to read books? Let's just say that it's a really good book, which I really enjoyed reading. And I even wrote a little blurb for it. And it <laughs> contains interviews with people who never speak to the media, ever, ever. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hold up. 